0: Every year in the first quarter, the National Low-Income Housing Coalition puts out a report called The Gap, a shortage of affordable rental homes.
1: And this year in the report, there are two numbers that really stand out, 11 million and 7 million. 11 million is the number of renter households with extremely low incomes, and 7 million is the shortage of affordable and available rental units for them.
0: That means that there are only 37 affordable and available units for every 100 extremely low-income renter households. And those units are needed nationwide. All 50 states and D.C. have a shortage of affordable housing, and the challenge is greater in some states than others.
1: This leaves renters severely cost burdened, which is an issue for low-income and very low-income households, but becomes an acute problem for extremely low-income renter households.
0: The question is, what can be done to relieve that cost burden? What can be done to close the gap?
1: Welcome to the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Steve Guggenmos.
0: And I'm Corey Aver. Today we're going to talk about the shortage in affordable housing for extremely low and very low-income renters and what can be done about it.
1: And to help us out, we're joined in the studio by Andrew Arend, the VP of research at the National Low Income Housing Coalition and the lead author of The Gap. Andrew, thanks for joining us.
2: Well, thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. So that 7 million number, a shortage of 7 million affordable and available, extremely low-income renter households, that's a staggering number. What does this tell us about the market?
2: Well, I mean, it tells us that the market um, doesn't really provide adequately for those with the lowest incomes. And so uh, we do this report uh, every every spring or every uh, March, actually, and we look at the rental homes that are affordable and available to the lowest income renters. And so those are renters who have incomes below poverty or below 30% of their area median income. And just to give that some context, a family of four that would be extremely low income is not earning any more than like $26,000 a year. And they could only afford about $640 a month in rent. And the market just doesn't provide enough rental homes that rent for that amount
1: or less than that amount. Right, and it's a shrinking number all the time. And it,
2: that's that's true. Um, you know, um, we have seen a decline over the last two decades, actually, of low-cost rental homes. Uh, uh, the Joint Center for Housing Studies estimates that in the last... 27 years, we've lost about two and a half million rental homes that rent for less than $800 a month, uh, infl- inflation-adjusted $800 a month. We lost about we've lost about two and a half million ho- rental homes, and at the same time, the rental market has added about 2.6 million rental homes that rent for more than $2,000 a month. And so, you know, we have the market that is providing uh, higher-cost rental homes, but not meeting the needs of those with really low incomes.
0: You know, there are two points about the, the shortage in the report uh, that stood out to me as well. You know, so you talk about 7 million uh, unit shortage of affordable and available uh, units and an absolute shortage of 3.6 million. So can you talk about the difference there?
2: Sure. So the difference is between what we refer to as affordable rental homes and affordable and available rental homes. And so when you look at uh, the stock or the rental housing supply across the country, there's about 7.4 million rental homes that technically would be affordable to extremely low-income renters. The thing is, you know, it's the private market, so many of those rental homes are occupied by households with higher incomes, and so they're not available. Out of, out of the seven, four million affordable rental homes, only four million of them are really available to extremely low-income renters. And so that's why we have this shortage of seven million that are affordable and available, because that's how many rental homes we would need to make a, make, afforda, make both affordable and
0: available so with with such a shortage in units that are both affordable and available, or even just that absolute shortage, uh where do those households who uh who make extremely low uh, incomes where are they living if there's not enough units affordable to them?
2: Right. So you know, many of them are living in housing that they cannot afford, so they're severely cost burdened spending more than half of their income on rent. Uh, some of them double up with friends or family members as well. Um, so those are the two situations that we see often. Uh, you know, and uh, we estimate that about uh, one point two million, so more than a million extremely low income renters are living in rental housing. That would be affordable to say middle income or moderate income renters. And so if there was if there were affordable homes, for these more than a million extremely low-income renters to move to that they could afford, that would free up more rental housing in the middle of the market for other renters.
1: And, and that yeah. certainly, I mean, like you talk about the uh, the, the severely cost-burdened households, those ones that have extremely low income and they're forced to rent something that's not affordable to them, those are, by definition, the severely cost-burdened right. households.
2: You know, they're spending more than half of their income On rent, you know, we often talk about the millions of uh, severely cost burdens across the country, and three quarters of those, three quarters of all severely cost burdened renters are extremely low income, and that has significant consequences for those renters. Um, we know that poor families that spend more than half of their income on rent spend less on food than poor families who have housing assistance. We know that they spend less on medical care, on medicine. Uh, We know that they are more likely to have children who are in poorer health, um, than those who are living in affordable
1: homes. And I think the academic issues as well.
2: Yes, absolutely. Uh, We also know that among young children, um, among young children in poor families, uh, perform better on cognitive development tests that they're living in a, a house that their parents can afford. And that's because their parents have them more resources, we think because they have more resources to spend on other enrichment type activities. And so it has uh, health, it has positive, living in an affordable home has positive health outcomes, positive educational outcomes.
1: Right, those impacts are are, are really meaningful and the national numbers are, are staggering. Um, Probably just as notable is that it's everywhere.
2: Absolutely. So you know, one of the things that we point out is that we point out in our report is that there's no state or major metropolitan area that has an adequate supply of rental housing for extremely low-income renters, um, and we also you know have data that shows nearly every county across the country has a has a shortage. So it is a national issue. Uh, and and the reason for that is that what what families with extremely low incomes can afford to pay in rent does not cover the cost of developing and maintaining new housing. It often doesn't cover the cost of maintaining the housing that currently exists if there's not subsidies to help maintain that housing or develop new housing. And so it really is a national problem that you find in just about every community.
0: You know, we, we noticed right, in, in reviewing your, your work that now, there were some states and some localities that were uh, you know, had a much larger problem than others, and some of that seemed a little bit surprising to us. So, for example, like Boston, right? We normally think of Boston as a you know really high cost burden market. Um, yet, the challenge was, you know, while still great, not as great as some of uh, some of the other markets around the country. So, what what explains that?
2: Right. Yeah, that's a question we get a lot. Uh, uh, people are surprised by that, and one thing. You're right. We do point out in the report that it's not so much that they have an adequate supply. It's that they have a least severe shortage or or a a shortage that is not as severe as other places. And the reason for that is that there are... um, a place like Boston has a greater supply of subsidized housing. Uh, what we see is in older cities and in older regions that were established at the, you know, that, that were well established places uh, when we were producing more subsidized housing, like producing public housing and producing more project based rental assistance homes uh, that are deeply subsidized for the poorest renters. Older cities tend to have. A greater supply of that housing. That housing still exists today. And it it helps meet the needs of extremely low-income renters. And it 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 really shows the importance of preserving this housing stock because it is so important. Um, and we're not the only ones to point this out. HUD HUD acknowledges this in their worst-case housing needs report that they do every other year, that regions that have a greater supply of subsidized housing. Uh, even though there's still a shortage, that shortage tends to be less severe than in other places that uh grew uh after you know we quit investing in in producing more subsidized housing
0: right so so newer markets that might have a lot of newer supply that newer supply is not going towards uh those lowest income renters right
2: right we haven't um we haven't made long-term commitments to developing new, deeply subsidized housing in a very long time that have been sufficient enough to, to really, you know, make a big difference.
1: Yeah, and I think in the report, too, you, you speak to, uh, in theory, there's a roll-down of apartments from uh, as uh, new units come online, then some of the older units kind of trickle down. Um, but but you took a look at that and see that there, there's sometimes pressure is and sometimes it differs by market as to whether that actually happens
2: right and so you know there's there is the filtering theory that you know as you develop new housing at any price point. Um, it helps all renters because you're, in, you're introducing new housing into the market. People will move into that housing. They'll leave behind the older housing that they're moving out of, and it starts this chain of, of events. And so the oldest housing will filter, filter down to the lowest income renters. The, the issue with that is, again, what extremely low income renters can afford to pay in rent does not necessarily cover the cost of maintaining housing. And so... You know, the end stage there of that housing, like as it reaches, so to speak, the end of that filtering process is in strong markets, there's an incentive for landlords to reinvest in that housing so they can charge higher rents to higher income households. Of course, the extremely low income renters then are left out of that. Uh, And in weak markets, you know, landlords don't have an incentive to maintain their property as housing if it's not going to bring in enough revenue to cover the costs of maintaining it as housing. And there may be better uses for that property in other ways. Um, so, so the filtering process is important. I mean, it, it happens, uh, but it doesn't mean that it's going to adequately serve the lowest income renters.
1: Like you say, it gets back to whether the the rental income is sufficient to cover the property operating expenses and the original development. And so that might drive ex- incentives for those uh, Owners to upgrade those properties, which then reduces this and supply. strong
2: markets definitely, yeah. right? And and again, that's why it's important to have resources to um, resources to either preserve or create affordable housing um, or rehabil- re- rehabilitate housing that can be affordable.
1: Circling back to something that you touched on before, where a number of these households uh, have big impacts to to their. Uh, to their health care, to their education, and all of those kind of things. You also touched on who these households are. Right,
2: exactly. So, you know, when we look at who are the renters with extremely low incomes, about a quarter of them are seniors, so older adults. Another 22% are people with disabilities. And then another 40% are people who are in the, in the labor force. And so right there you have, you know, more than more than 85%, 86% are either seniors, people with disabilities, uh, or people of working age who are in the labor force. And then many others are either in school or they're single caregivers, single single adult caregivers of either a young child or someone with a disability. And so that's, you know, that's who we're talking about. Um, You know, and the, the interesting thing and the important or the important thing for for everyone to understand is that, you know, those who are working in the labor force even and have extremely low incomes, many of them are working full time. And so, you know, we estimate that of the extremely low income renters who are in the labor force, about 43% of them are working full time, so 40 hours or more a week. And more than three quarters of them are working at least 20 hours a week. And the issue there is that there's a lot of low wage paying jobs that just don't, don't pay wages high enough to allow workers to afford their housing. And the other thing I'll add about that is, is, um, you know, we we looked at uh, the 10 occupations that are expected to, the projected to grow the most over the next 10 years. And seven of the 10 occupations that are projected to grow the most don't pay a median wage that is high enough for a full-time worker to afford a modest apartment at the fair market rent in their area. And so we see this expected growth of low-wage jobs, so this is going to be a continuing and growing problem.
0: So even even though now it's a really tight labor market, what's being added it doesn't sort of meet the the economic need.
2: Exactly. It it doesn't it doesn't meet the co- the cost of living like The cost of uh, necessities, particularly uh, housing.
1: Mm -hmm. And I think as we look at markets and evaluate affordability in them, certainly these high cost markets sometimes don't appear um, as as burdensome as they might because of the income in those areas. But that actually doesn't help those households because those who are at minimum wage or in that range um, just don't get up to the levels where market rents are.
2: Yeah, the, you know, we do another report every year uh, called Out of Reach uh, that we release uh, typically in the summer, and w- what we do there is we look at how much a full-time worker would need to earn in order to afford a modest one-bedroom or two-bedroom apartment at the fair market rent. And, you know, as you qu- would expect, you know, the the areas that are the most expensive are, you know, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, the, the typical places you would you would think of. Uh, and and there's definitely you know a, an affordability problem there. The one thing that that we point out in that report, though, is that even when you look at less expensive areas, so you could think of like communities, you know, that would be less expensive in in less expensive states like Arkansas or Alabama or, or somewhere, that even though they appear to be less expensive, there's still a significant affordability problem. And that affordability problem exists because incomes are lower there. So you have higher incomes in a place like San Francisco, lower incomes in other places, and no matter where the community is located, uh, the lowest income renters in that area can't find affordable housing.
1: Which is consistent with this report where you find the the issue is the same, or not the same everywhere, but the issue exists everywhere. And maybe maybe that's uh, are are there um, differences that you would highlight across the markets? I know the or states that are that are notable.
2: Well, one of the things I, um, you know, a, a lot of the um, we looked at how this has changed in states over time, and one of the things is you know states seem to have followed a similar trend to one another, which is you know. W- the shortage of affordable and available rental homes for extremely low-income renters has increased quite a bit since 2007. Um, and we've seen that just about everywhere. Uh, it's gotten a little bit better in recent years. I think the worst year was, I think, 2013, and since then the shortage has gotten a little bit better. But that's mostly because there's been a, a small decline in the number. Of extremely low-income renters, some improvements uh, in the economy and some some in, some small improvement among low-wage workers has has lowered the number of extremely low-income renters. Uh, so the shortage has gone down a little bit, but it's still a significant problem. Uh, and and we've seen that trend in most places across the country.
0: So, so when when talking about that that uh, sort of reduction in extremely low-income renters. Uh, is that is that change really going from like 30 percent of AMI to like 32 percent AMI, or is it or is it a bigger jump than that? You know, is it really a material change to those households? You know, one or two you know, percent, well, well, beneficial. Oh, that's that. a good
2: question. Yeah, I would say it's probably just a movement slightly above what we would officially classify as extremely low income. So, say going from extremely low income to what. We would call very low income, which would be you know a household earning less than half of the area median income.
1: So yeah, I mean there's still a a, a problem there. And I think you do see that even in the national or metro data as you look at units that are affordable to extremely low income. We've seen we've seen that in some of our reports where that's falling a lot, and you see a little bit of growth in the ones that are affordable to very low income, but it's it's basically a small um, cycling up. Um, and uh, and certainly still highlights the issue, but but uh, as as Andrew suggested, the issues at the at the bottom um, for the extremely low income is is really uh, the area where you see it the most.
0: So Andrew, in, in the report, you look at uh, you look at some things that uh, you know, maybe could be done over time to address the, to address these issues or have been done over time. Um you know so maybe what are the like, you know top one or two one, two or three things that that uh you see is really making a difference sure um
2: you know it 's a complex issue uh you know as we 've been saying it 's a national problem it 's a complex problem, and th- it's a national problem, but there's so many different housing markets across the country, like thousands of housing markets that eat the you know, have different reasons for, for um, the shortage for extremely low-income renters being a problem. And so we need a variety of solutions. And so, you know, some of these markets have have housing, you know, they have an adequate supply of housing. The problem is the lowest income renters who live there can't afford the housing that exists. And so in markets like that, rental assistance, so something like vouchers, to help Extremely low-income renters afford the housing in the private market that is there is very important. So that's one thing we need is an increase in rental assistance that's provided to low-income renters. And then there's other markets, uh, as you can imagine, that even um, even if there were an adequate supply of vouchers, there would still be a significant problem because there's simply not enough housing where those vouchers could be used. And so we also need production programs. We need production subsidies that would provide funds to develop housing that is deeply subsidized for the lowest income renters. That's And that is something that, um, you know, as a country, we have not made a long-term commitment to in a long time, uh, since the 1970s, really. Uh, and it's something that we need to to return to is to preserve that deeply subsidized housing that is currently there, and to add to that stock as well.
1: And I think that type of market that you speak to, where where there's just not enough units, is is certainly a growing number of markets because we see the occupancy rates so high in every market, whether it's single-family, multifamily, housing markets are tight. Exactly.
0: Yeah, and Andrew, you talked about uh, also sort of some of the consequences of of being. Uh, you know, severely cost burdened, one of those consequences being uh, on the health side. Uh, you know, I've been hearing, you know, more talk over time about about health and housing, about, uh, you know, maybe interest uh, in that, in uh, those sectors relating more. What, you know, have, have you been seeing that as well? And, and, and if so, you know, what are some emerging trends there?
2: Yeah, I think that, you know, I think that both the housing sector and the health sector have both um, – seen and are really better understanding the importance of that connection and how important having a stable home and having adequate shelter is importance to one's health. Um, Children's Health Watch recently released a study that found that you know, because young children of poor families who live in stable homes are likely to be in better health, they're likely to have fewer emergency room visits, that healthcare costs go down uh, if you invest in affordable housing, and I think Children's Health Watch estimated that, you know, if we had an adequate supply of affordable homes for these poor families, it could save about hundred billion dollars uh, in Medicare costs. And and I think that that connection is, it, I think both sectors have have become much more aware of that connection, and many other people are making that connection, which is very important.
1: Great. Um, so I I think this has been a great discussion. Um, Andrew and I, the uh, I'm not sure if there's other points that we've uh, forgotten to bring up or that you'd like to make from the paper.
2: Um, I would just say that uh, you know, so so we have the Gap Report, which talks about the national shortage. Uh, then, if you go to the the website for the Gap, um, we provide uh, the shortage for every state. So you know, there's a map on our homepage, nlihc.org backslash gap. And there's a map there, so you can click on the state, and then you could see how the gap has changed from 2007 to today. Uh, we have an interactive table for each state that shows how those numbers have changed.
1: That is nice. And I've noticed in the report, too, you have the worst metros and, and metros. You have a ranking of metros. and I thought it was interesting. I think Orlando is the worst metro, is that, which, which uh, is surpri- another one that might be surprising to people.
2: Yeah, so one of the things that that we see is that um areas that have a that have uh industries that have a lot of low wage jobs. So for example, Orlando a lot of service oriented jobs. So there's a lot of low wage jobs uh at the same time, you know, there there's not rental housing that's priced for people in those low wage jobs and so places like um Orlando, Las Vegas is also on on that list of having some of the most severe shortages. Uh and, and that's part of the part of the reason is there's a lot of low wage employment there, uh, but not housing to go along with those low wages.
0: Well, Andrew, thank you so much uh, for coming on on the podcast. Uh, you know, fantastically uh, informative uh, interview and, and report that you put out. To looking forward to uh, continuing to follow your work and hopefully have you on again. Oh, I'd love to come back. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. If you're interested in more, be sure to follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud.